Daniel 6 this morning. In Daniel chapter 6, I want to point out something that I didn't notice for years. And that is that King Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar and his, uh, well, King Nebuchadnezzar, his son Nabonidus, and his, his son Belshazzar are no longer the king. I always read Daniel and I'm like, why are the king's names changing? I thought it was Nebuchadnezzar. Well, because Daniel's prophet ministry in the Babylonian nation and then in the Persian and the Medo-Persian nation and all of these nations, uh, it's changed. And so when you read in your storybook Bible about Jesus, or excuse me, about Daniel being in the den of lions, I don't know about you guys, but I always pictured this kid, this young, faithful man. But he's in his 80s now. He's lived through three different kingdoms, essentially, three different leaderships, and now he's at the point where he is uh, being faithful among this nation that has conquered the previous nation that he was a prophet to, the Babylonians. They've been taken over by the Persians or the, the Medes. And so in chapter 6, when we come on the scene, Darius is now the king. So in chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or in some of your translations it might say princes, to be over the whole kingdom. And over these there were three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps or the princes might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was within him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel. So we, we start to more, this morning's reading with Daniel and with this new kingdom. Now Daniel is essentially still involved in the roles of leadership. He's still given this... Um, this authority to be someone who speaks into the lives of those leading the country or these nations. But what I want to point out to you is that, if you remember with me, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was one of absolute authority. He was the only one who made decisions. He had people that advised him, but he was the only one with power to make any long-lasting decisions. So then you come down to Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar, who's the only one mentioned, and there's essentially two kings. There's two rulers. They answer to one another. And so you can see that over time, the amount of leadership is spread over more and more people. And if you know if there's too many people making the decisions, nobody's making the decisions. What we find today is that Darius comes in, starts this kingdom, and he sets 120 princes in authority over these different provinces. And so now it's become a, a bureaucracy. There's all these multitudes of people making decisions. And so then he doesn't personally get involved with every one of these leaders. He sets three governors. And so you can see that there's this stack of leadership. And over time, there's less and less authority per leader. That makes sense. So Daniel seemingly has this excellent spirit within him that gives him favor with every leader that is in power over the nation that he's a prophet to, and every time he seems to get promoted. 
Now, how cool is that? Do you know that we've been filled as believers with that same spirit that was in Daniel? That same spirit doesn't just reside in a place of worship. He dwells in you and I. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So as you look at Daniel, I don't want you to see this hero of the Bible. If you've ever read a children's Bible that says heroes of the Bible on the cover, I would encourage you, throw the thing away. Because the Bible is not about its heroes. As a matter of fact, every person that seemingly is a hero in the Bible is only that because of the God that they serve. Daniel was set apart at a very early age. He was called to this foreign nation, and he has influence in this nation, not because he's a smart guy, not because he's a religious guy that goes to church every week, but because he's a man that has decided, I will not obey anyone's rules or cultural boundaries or traditions. I will follow my God and him only. So Daniel is set apart every time, and he is known to be excellent among those that he's been called to that do not know his God. And they don't always agree with his stances, but they cannot argue with him because no fault is found within him. No fault. Blameless. And we're going to see that. So in verse 3, it says, Then this Daniel distinguished himself. He distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because, here's the cause, an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So that thought of an excellent spirit can be better explained in Ephesians in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 25, 24, talks about the new man, the new creation that we've been made because of what Christ has done. So Paul writes the, to the Ephesian church in verse 17 of chapter 4, and he says this, This I say, therefore, and I testify on the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But this is what he says about believers. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, kind of taking it off like you would take off a garment, put off this former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt and according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So to put off the old man and to put on the new is something we have to do intentionally. Daniel had an effect in his generation because he had intentionally put off the things, the fleshly desires of his fleshly nature, and he had put on his God, his, the statutes, the precepts. And because of that, God honored that. So he says in verse 15 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming means to, to buy something back that's been wasted. 
to buy something back, to redeem it. And he says, walk circumspectly. This means not to walk in ignorance, but to walk in wisdom, considering the things that are going on around you. How many people do you know are walking through this life and it's like they're asleep? They're just walking around, just doing whatever's in front of them because they don't know any different. They're like zombies. Now, I don't watch zombie shows, but as I was stretching at work the other day, uh, somebody brought up zombies and I heckled them. I mocked them a little bit, just a little bit, because they were adults. And I was like, they were really into zombies. And so they were telling me about whatever show, is Walking Dead? I know a lot of people are into it, and I'm not against it. I haven't seen it, but that's not my point. But they started breaking down to me like, they're different than the old school zombies. They don't just eat your brain, they eat your whole body or whatever. And they don't just say, you know, they, they shake around and they were breaking it down to me. But I, I was, I look at zombies and I go, where did people come up with this? Because there's nothing new under the sun, right? Well, you don't have to look far to figure out what zombies came from. They came from teenagers with cell phones. <laughs> and I say that because we all know what I'm talking about. But look past that. There's a new generation that picked it up. Is it the younger ones? Yes. But it's also after those teenagers picked up their phones and their zombies with them, now their parents are doing it. My parents look like zombies. My dad would, said he would never text message. Never. Made a decree. I will never text message. That is the most worthless way to communicate. He now has a smartphone, and you can't have a conversation with him because he's looking at it. He's going, I wonder what email I got. Who cares? It'll be there tomorrow. You know, he's a zombie. You know, and so people are walking through life excited about the next email, and, and yet they're missing out on life. People are walking through life, living vicariously through something that was posted on Facebook, and most of them posted it three weeks ago. They've already seen it, but they don't remember it, and so they're just moving on. Now, this isn't a rant about cell phones. My point is, is that we are, as Christians, we have been given sight. Not just sight to see, but spiritual eyes to understand what's actually going on around us. And we're, if we're not careful... We'll just delve into the same lifestyle everybody else is and miss out on actually living. There are many people who live, but not too many people truly live. And so here we are with Daniel. He's filled with this excellent spirit that gives him wisdom to understand what's going on around him, gives him wisdom to interpret dreams, gives him wisdom to understand this message that's been scrawled on the wall for Belshazzar and explaining to him that it's, hey, your kingdom's being taken from you. You've been weighed in the balances, and you've been found wanting. And now this other kingdom's going to come in and take over, just like God told your father and your father before him. But because his father before him hadn't walked circumspectly and taught that to the next generation, Belshazzar was like, who's this guy coming in and taking up my kingdom? Well, I told you about him three chapters ago in the book of Daniel. You know, of course, he didn't have this, but he did have what the scribes wrote down to keep history in his nation. But if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. So this new kingdom's here. Daniel's still doing what he does. He's still obeying the precepts of the Lord. So here in verse 4, it says that he was distinguished because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel. If you are faithful 
with the little things, God will give you more to be faithful over. And Daniel is an example of that. But notice what happens as a result of this. Those that were also leaders around him, they hated him, they were jealous, and they wanted to take his position. And so it says they sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But look at this. They could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. He was faithful to his God, and so it made him blameless before those whom he served. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. This is supernatural. This is something that we can do as well. This is, this is not outside of our grasp. You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm, God's working on me. Yes, that's true. But that was true with Daniel as well. And he didn't have the relationship with the Holy Spirit that we have offered to us. How much more are we able to be blameless in our generation and be a billboard for God's grace and his goodness? Our lives should be blameless. Not to judge others, but if our lives are blameless, guess what it does to other people without us saying a word? It's convicting. Now they're going to think that we're condemning them by our lifestyles but really it's convicting them. That's the Holy Spirit showing them that there is sin, there is righteousness, and there will be judgment. How do I know? Because I just saw that guy's life, and he's different, and I don't know why, and I asked him. And he said, it's because God's going to judge every deed that I do. I want to be righteous. I want to be good. And I don't do it on my own. The Holy Spirit gives me the ability. And so he says, they sought to find some charge against Daniel but they couldn't find one. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So if we have a law that causes him to not be able to follow the law of his God, we know Daniel's going to be faithful. He's not going to back down. Then we can get him. Then we can get him in trouble. And so I find this interesting because all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution in some way or another. In some way or another. It may not be that they throw you in jail or try to burn you at the stake or skin you alive. That happens today. But they will try to assassinate your character. They will try to make you foolish. And how do I know that? Because Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. It says there, Jesus was teaching. He was going around the nation. And, and it says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. They were trying to lay a trap. Verse 14, When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Therefore, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now think about this. They're going to lay a trap for Daniel, but they can't find any blame, that he's blameless. In all of his ways, he's blameless. So they try to set a trap for him with the law of the land. In the same way, the Pharisees came to Jesus. They couldn't find any fault in him. They said, okay, we'll get him this way. We'll get the politicians to hate him. We'll get the government to be against him. Hey, 
is it lawful to pay taxes? You know, that's always been a divisive question, right? So he says, do you want us to pay taxes? And Jesus answers wisely. He, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, well, then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now this coin is made in the image of who? Caesar. We are made in the image of who? God. So money is God. It's God's, but it's really Caesar's. So give it to him. It's not worth anything. But we are the currency of God. We are made in his image. So give the money to, God, to, to Caesar, but give your life to God. He's even pleading grace and mercy to the Pharisees. He wasn't being rude to them. He was actually being very truthful and loving. Render your lives to God. Stop working for money that cannot save. And so, back in Daniel, we see this. We see Daniel struggling. So, verse 6. So, these governors, these satraps, they started to plot against him. They thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. And all the governors of the kingdom and the administrators and the princes, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make him decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the decree. So King Darius comes up. He has all these leaders, and they flatter him. Uh, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5 says, He who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So if you know somebody that's trying to flatter you that you don't normally talk to or you don't normally get along with, watch out. They're setting a snare. They're setting a trap for you to be caught in. They're trying to earn your favor so they can one-up you or so they can set something. And they're doing this to Darius. They're flattering him and saying, hey, let's, you know, we want to honor you. And so we want to set a decree that people will not pray to any god but you. Essentially saying, you are godlike. You need to be having a holiday named after you. And of course, Darius, he succumbs to the flattery and he's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't do that for myself, but if you guys want to, go ahead. You write it up and I'll sign it. And he signs it. We're going to find out later that he regrets this decision. Therefore, verse 9, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Every day since he was brought to this land, he went up to his room, opened his windows towards Jerusalem, and he prayed to his God. He's a leader of the nation, and this was his custom. I want you to notice, it says, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed. He didn't do this unbeknownst to him, knowing that it was against the law. He knew that the decree was made 
and that there would be consequences if he continued in his pattern. He knew that. He went into it knowingly. He counted the cost. That's what's walking circumspectly. That's walking in wisdom. Knowing what you're doing with your life, knowing what you're doing with your time, and having counted the cost. I also want to point out that Daniel didn't do this because the decree had been made. He didn't hear the law and then go, well, I'm going to pray anyway. That was not his attitude. He went upstairs and he prayed because he had always done that. This wasn't a reaction. This was his daily habit. And I want to point that out because I would submit to you that a large percentage of American Christians pray when we need something. We pray when things are going wrong. But we don't pray every day as if our life depended upon it like breathing. We, we pray when things go bad. We pray when buildings get bombed. We pray when shootings happen. We pray when someone has cancer. And those are all good things, but we need to develop a daily prayer life when things are fine because what we don't do when things are easy, we definitely won't do when things are hard. I mean, I, I can make a case for the opposite, but being in a relationship with God is what makes the effect on our life. That, Daniel's faithfulness was not uh, cultivated when things were bad. It was cultivated when he prayed when things were good, when he submitted to the authority and the rulership of his king, Jesus. When you recognize that Jesus is your king and the king that just overtook your nation is an ungodly man, it doesn't shake you because your king is Jesus. No matter who is president, Jesus is king. You ever see that? I mean, it's true. No matter who is the authority over you, no matter who your boss is, you work for Jesus. And that changes your attitude no matter how hard your boss is to work with, no matter how hard your family is to deal with. Here comes the holidays. I'd say start praying now, right? Pray that you could be a witness to them in the way that your excellence is shown. Let your excellence be your testimony. That's Daniel. So it says there, He did this as was his custom since early days. So then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. They set a trap. They went and checked the trap, right? They set the law. They went to see if he continued doing it. They knew he was going to be praying. His faithfulness was known to all the ungodly people. Let me ask you this. Why was he praying towards Jerusalem? Does anybody know? Turn with me to 1 Kings 8. Last week we read about how the implements were made in 1 Kings 7, and how the temple was constructed by Solomon. But then there was a prayer of dedication by King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. He dedicates the temple. But I want you to notice what he prays. 1 Kings 8 verse 44. He says, When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, He's praying to God here. And when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. But notice this. I I was reading this this morning, and I think it's odd that he prays this because it doesn't seem to be a prayer of faith, as it were. It's a prayer of knowing what's going to happen. Verse 46, he prays, When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Have you ever heard somebody say, hey, I don't need Jesus because I don't sin? 
Take them to this verse. The Bible says that everyone sins in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. He says, When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy. It says here that God delivers them to their enemies when they sin against him. And they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive, and they repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness, that's repentance, verse 48, and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and when they pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, notice this, verse 49, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Establish them when they are taken away captive by their own sins and they come to their senses in their land of their captivity, and that's what sin does. It takes us off to captivity. It separates us from fellowship with God and with each other. But when they're in the land of their captivity by their own consequences, by their own deeds, and they pray, pray towards this temple, there was a location in that day. God was not met anywhere you wanted. You had to go to the temple. There was only one place. Where do we go? Jesus. He is our temple. He is our refuge. He is Mount Zion. He is the foundation that will not be shaken. We pray not towards him, but he is in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in Daniel's day, you would pray towards Jerusalem you would pray prayers of repentance and, Lord, deliver us from our enemies. He says, when they do this, maintain their cause. Reestablish them on a firm foundation. And that's what God's doing. But Daniel's praying in faith, knowing that if he will do this, he will do it faithfully, that God will hear his prayers in heaven and make his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You guys ever go to a church where you, you pray that every week? I, I used to go to the Methodist church. And we prayed that specific prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We weren't supposed to just pray that, but the things that are in there are an outline for what we should be praying because whether you realize it or not, we are a people that is captive in a land that's not our home. We are not home. We are in a land of captivity and sin and temptation. We're not in the kingdom of God yet but God wants to deliver us there. So while we are here, we are to pray like Daniel. Lord, deliver us. Establish us. Maintain your cause. Use us to be faithful while we're here still. And he will answer that prayer. He will hear in heaven and make his will to be done, and he'll start it in us. And so Daniel is praying towards the place that he is to pray. So back in Daniel... He's just trusting the word of God. I love this. 
So the king, the men assembled, verse 11, and found Daniel praying and making supplication for his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not change. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, that Daniel, he's, they're now accusing him, that Daniel, who was one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Not just once, but three times daily. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with who? Himself. He loved Daniel. He cared about him. He valued him. Even though he, he didn't follow his gods, he valued Daniel. How crazy is that? The king, who everyone was supposed to pray to, is displeased with himself because he's realizing, I'm not infallible. I'm not perfect. I made a big mistake here. And so he says, and he, it's, he set his heart on Daniel in order to deliver him. He set his heart to deliver Daniel. This is the man that they're supposed to be, no one can pray to anybody but the king. And the king sets his heart to deliver Daniel. And what we're going to find out is he can't. He's looking for a loophole. He, he's looking all day in the laws of the Medes and the Persians. trying to. I see him like a lawyer, trying to find some way to help his client. And he can't find one, not even one. And so it says he, can't, he found, tried to find a way to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Now, king, it's in the law of the Medes and the Persians, and no decree or statute which you establish can change it. So the king gave the command. They brought Daniel and cast him into the den of the lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. That's a statement of faith from an ungodly king who has signed a decree to make himself God to his people. I've tried to deliver you all day, Daniel, but I think your God, who has answered these prayers, who has delivered you, who has given you favor, this God who has given you the ability to interpret dreams, who has kept you throughout these kingdoms, even though they've been overthrown, he's going to be faithful to you because I can't. Even if you could pray to me, I can't deliver you. But I think your God can deliver you. I don't know if this is a statement of true faith because we'll find out here that the king didn't sleep that night. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought, laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. His death is imminent. His death, uh, he's on death row and he's been given it. So verse 18, now the king went to his palace and he spent the night fasting. No mus musicians were brought before him. They would use music to soothe their souls. Uh, he didn't call any musicians in. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. 
the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. I think it's interesting he uses that word, living God. This true God has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? It's a good question, right? I want to stop here. Daniel is in the safest place he's ever been. I would submit that to you. He's in a den with lions. Lions were made at that point. They used them to kill people. You ever watch the movie Gladiator? That was part of the show. They'd send the lion. Hey, you know, these guys aren't dying quick enough. Send the lions out to eat them. And these were man-eating lions. That's what they were made for, punishment. So Daniel, in our minds, sometimes we might think he's in the most dangerous spot. But if think about it, he's a godly man living in an ungodly nation saying that the only way to follow God is through his God. And he's lived among these people who have hated him for 70 years. 70 years. He's now safe because these men have free will to do with him what they want. These lions, God's able to shut their mouths. Isn't it interesting that creation often responds to God's leading more than men do? Think about the men when they jumped on the boat with Jesus to cross the Sea of Galilee. Jesus didn't look at them and say, stop being afraid, and then they stopped. Instead, he was like, you know what's easier? I'm going to just speak to creation and tell the storm to stop. He told the storm to stop, and it did. Men's hearts are just rebellious against God's commands, but creation itself bows the knee. No problem. And so Daniel is in a safe place, I would say. So the king went to his palace. Excuse me, we already read that. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? This is going to be a testimony to Darius. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. I was reading this this morning, and I've always seen this as, you know, you kind of see these guys that say, oh, king, live forever. And they're speaking to him with flattery. I don't believe Daniel was flattering him here. I think this was a grace note. I think this was, I think this was Daniel saying, oh, king, that you would see this and see the glory of my God and live forever with him. That you would be changed, that you would be delivered into a relationship of the God I serve daily. He says, oh, king, that you would live forever that you would have an eternal relationship with my God. Notice he says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. I was unrighteously judged. I did not get justice, but God always gives justice. Now, the king was exceedingly glad for Daniel and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him. Here's the reason. Because he believed in his God. Because he trusted God. It was by faith that he was delivered. So the king gave the command. They brought those men who had accused Daniel. They cast them into the den of lions. Look at this. Them, their children, their wives, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. They didn't even hit the ground. So if there's any question by an unbeliever that reads this, it goes, well, these must have been tame lions. Bull. No, these, these were man-eating lions. And when they, I guarantee you overnight they were getting hungry. And they, there's no reason in animals. They, they do what they do. 
And, and these lions ate these people. They broke all their bones. And this was a testimony to those who would live ungodly. So let me submit this to you. Daniel was saved from the lion's den because he believed God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus speaking says this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Then Psalm chapter 118. I don't know how I came across this this week, but I thought it was uh, fitting. Psalm 118, verse 5. A prayer. He says, I called on the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. If he would have put his confidence in this man or these princes, uh, his confidence was lost because he was thrown to the lions. But it is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. And notice verse 7, The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. I kind of see that as more than likely Daniel wasn't a big fan of these princes around him, but God gave them their comeuppance. Uh, the thing that they wished upon those, uh, upon Daniel, they, they got it. And we see that in the book of Ruth as well. There was a, a king that was after, was it Ruth? No, sorry. Esther. You ever read the story of Esther? There's a man named Haman and he wanted to kill uh, Mordecai. Thank you, Kelly. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai, so he built this big hanging place to, to hang him in public display as a judgment on him. And Haman ends up getting that judgment on himself. And Mordecai goes away free. That's how God works, except in the case of Jesus. See, Daniel here is a perfect picture of Jesus because I see this den of lions, this den of death, and he was delivered from it. But Jesus being accused just like Daniel was in every way. Daniel's a perfect picture of Jesus to me in the Old Testament. I don't see anything spoken unwell of Daniel, even though I guarantee he sinned because there's no one sinless except God, except Jesus. And so we see Daniel being thrown into death, and God shuts the mouth of death. And we see Jesus being crucified on the cross and killed and put into the ground for three days. And yet he comes out alive. Death being defeated. So there's Jesus in the Old Testament. Once again, seeing death defeated. And that was the, the, the one that was to come that would not have death conquered by God, but instead being conquered through the power of the Holy Spirit, death no longer reigns. And so we see as a result of this, Daniel is saved from the lion's den. But how? It says because he believed his God. So I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 11 because I think this is important. It was by faith that Daniel was saved. 
And I know that because the New Testament says it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. This is known as the Hall of Faith. You have the Hall of Fame for NFL. You know, you got the Hall of Faith for Christians. He says, by faith, verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell down when they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? He mentions, kind of just summarizing, he says, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak. We read about Gideon this morning, if you read our Bible study together. Uh, He says, would fail for me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, look at this, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. There's Daniel. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. All of these did this by faith. There was nothing in them that made them special or powerful. It was all because they believed God and took him up on his promises. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By it, the elders, those who went before us, obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things that are visible. Verse 6, But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So back in Daniel, we'll close. We see Darius noticing, believing the testimony of Daniel, seeing it with his own eyes that Daniel's God delivered him from certain, absolutely certain death. And it says there, King Darius wrote, verse 25, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This is written to us, by the way. A testimony from an ungodly king. He says, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, steadfast forever, His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? He he glorifies the God who delivered Daniel. He doesn't glorify Daniel. He could have. Man, this Daniel's awesome. He says, no, this God is the one who delivered Daniel from the power of the lions, So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Man, I love this story. So Father, we praise you as the God of Jacob, 